Hello and welcome uh, to the Science Ready podcast, where I talk to amazing women in science, music and the arts. Today I'm talking to Niobe Haitas, uh, who is currently based in Montreal, Canada. She's um, a researcher at the University of Montreal, um, working on the science of aging, um, also has a background in psychology, has worked within humanitarian settings and international development for many years. And is now, as I said, working on uh, research that links uh, language with um, aging. So I'm looking forward to learning more about that from uh, Niobe. Hello, Niobe, how are you? Hi, Isabel. Thank you very much uh, for hosting me and giving me a voice and to all the other excellent uh, women, like amazing women that I heard on your podcast. I'm fine. Thank you. How are you? <laughs> thanks, thanks. No, it's great to have you. Uh, how, are, how are things otherwise, by the way? Um, how are you dealing in the pandemic and how are things now in, in Canada, where you are? Uh, they have been not that bad, but I think that uh, um, uh, despite the confinement, they could have been better. Like There are still cases, like uh, the cases have not dropped uh, Completely. So at some point the government was planning even to open schools on the 18th of May and then they withdrew this decision and they said, okay, we're not good yet. And uh, so I think it's good that they take steps um, to be overcautious rather than, than open schools, especially only for three weeks or four weeks. It wouldn't make sense to me to take such a huge risk because kids are vectors of diseases. Um, uh, so this is one thing Then I haven't really followed, but uh, I've heard that the government has been giving out a lot of support to individual and companies and, um, yeah. Okay. So, yeah. Okay. That's so, great to hear. Yeah. Uh, at least that, that there's support and everything and, and I guess that you're coping as well at home. So that's, that's, that's good. Um, uh, because you're obviously you're working research normally at the university in Montreal. Um, mm-hmm. Like, how have you been doing your transition um, from from the university? I guess within what you're doing now, uh, and can you tell us a bit more what you're doing now as well, what you're working on at the moment? Uh, well, um, to be honest, it wasn't such a huge transition for me, and I would I could say that I've been in confinement anyways for for the last couple of years uh, because I have I have I have been having a very home based um, lifestyle and activity. I was working from home on my PhD. Um, I was um, I'm working on my PhD, but I will be submitting it as a register report. I don't know if, you, if you're aware what this is. No, can you explain it a bit? Yeah. I guess most people would be aware uh, of the PhD kind of the standards form, but yeah. Uh, it's a, in fact, it's a new type of publication, which is uh, which was created to avoid all the bad research practices, which happen, which uh, which happen to happen um, very much in I guess many fields, scientific fields. Um, uh, in fact, they're not called bad, they're called questionable, questionable research practices. So, for example, um, very often maybe uh, studies might use a low statistical power um, or they might, let's say, keep on collecting data until they find something significant to publish or they might um, selectively 
uh, report on findings so that they confirm or not a specific hypothesis. The other, the other questionable research practice has to do with um, with a hypothesis where, for example, as 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 publication happens today, you submit your whole article, including the introduction, the methodology, the the hypothesis, of course, the results and the discussion. You you submit it in one go, and it's easy to just um, formulate your hypothesis after you have um, completed your results, right? Mm -hmm. And it's very tempting. And so this new type of publication, um, you, your uh, manuscript, your register report would be um, submitted on a as a first stage only the hypothesis and the proposed methodologies. And then uh, based on the soundness of the scientific methodology, uh, the article gets the rest of the report gets accepted or not, and then you have an in principle acceptance mm -hmm. where your the second part of the manuscript, including the results in the discussion, would be accepted regardless of the outcomes, whether you have interesting findings, boring findings, no findings. Uh, the, the journal commits to publishing your uh, report. So I don't know if I explained it well. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, okay. I think it, I think it is great. I mean, and and that's um, kind of how it was approached when I was still doing my PhD. But then it kind of it changed a lot because the pressure on publications was so high. And mm. I mean, I think research should always be about whether it's good or bad results or or less good results. Any result is good because it shows what you're doing right. Uh, and then when cer whether certain methodologies don't work, so then let's do something else. But why they did not work, it should be published as well um, in, in, in ways that people can understand as well why it didn't work or why the outcomes were like that. So, so yeah, that's... Um, and, and does it then work in the same way with, um, like, the defense? Or is it... Your your uh, final presentation is that still like in front of a jury, or is uh, is it more in terms of the acceptance of the report, and that's that's kind of it then. It's it's mainly about the acceptance of the of the articles, mm -hmm. but for my for my final thesis, uh, what I will be doing um, is I will put my published articles in in the PhD, and I will write an introduction and an overall discussion, and in fact to defend. You mainly have to have articles published, mm, yeah, which proves your work and the peer-reviewed uh, process. Yeah, yeah. Okay, and and can you tell us a bit more about your work now that you're putting in the reports, the kind of the research that you're sure. working? on? <laughs> so yeah, so I'm uh, I'm at this stage where I'm um, um, completing and. Um, Making more excellent my methodology part because I don't I want to publish as a register report so I, my methodology needs to be excellent from a scientific point of view. Um, so I have two articles in preparation. Uh, both are about aging and language. So I will be uh, comparing young people with old people on a semantic task. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, semantic task. Semantic memory. I don't know if you know what it is. Uh, yeah, but can you explain a bit more for, just sure. for the audience as well to understand better? Yeah, uh, semantic memory is um, it's our general knowledge about the world. For example, if we know that a zebra has stripes, it's part of a semantic memory. If we know that, um, um, for example, in pizza you would put um, 
uh, you would put the crust and on top of it you would put the, the cheese and the tomato sauce and the olives and the peppers and the onions. It's a kind of a semantic memory as opposed to other forms of memory where you have to recall uh, more specific events of your life, for example, uh, the short-term memory or the long-term memory or the episodic memory. So semantic memory is another type of memories which you don't know, you are, we acquire from knowledge, you cannot pinpoint a specific event to this semantic memory, it's just general knowledge about the world and the environment that surrounds us. So I will be doing a semantic task, so that, therefore um, uh, evaluate, evaluating, yeah, testing a bit semantic memory in young and old people. Uh, the theory says that semantic memory is one of the few um, skills that not only does not degrade in aging, but probably remains, uh, gets even improved because we have uh, all the people have more experiences and larger vocabularies. So they tend to score in performance tests, even though the reaction times may be slower, their uh, accuracy scores tend to be sometimes even better than younger people. Um, so that's why there is this uh, research focus on language and aging, uh, because uh, all elderly people have, um, it's a skill that is very well preserved. Uh, so in my first talk, uh, there are several, yeah, there are several uh, um, neurofunctional reorganization models to explain aging. Uh, so there have been several types of uh, activation in the brains of elderly people, which are different from the ones of younger people. So there are different models to explain what happens in the brain of elderly people. And, for example, there are models that will uh, promote the idea of compensation. So, for example, if, if um, a young person does a linguistic task, uh, this task will mainly activate the left hemisphere. And it will be quite lateralized. Let's say, yes, of course, there will be some regions in the right hemisphere, but it's very evident that the left hemisphere regions are uh, activated. Um, whereas if, if the, an older person does such a task, the same task, you will see a more even dis evenly distributed activation between the left and the right hemisphere. This is one model, it's called Harold, mm -hmm. which refers to asymmetry reduction and says older people will compensate for the loss of neuronal, neuronal resources and the loss of cognitive um, uh, competence to perform a task by recruiting resources, neuronal, neural resources from the opposite, from the contralateral hemisphere. Mm -hmm. So this is one model to explain a compensatory model. Other models will say it will move from the occipital to the anterior lobe so that, and this, this is the passa, and this would be justified um, by the fact that um, in the occipital lobe, you'd, you'd have more of the visual, um, um, you would have more of the uh, regions which are responsible for sensory processing. Mm -hmm. So as, as, for example, the elderly people tend to have uh, less good vision, they will compensate with more anterior recruitment. And there are other models, similar models. Um, the one I, I will be using is called Crunch. Okay. Uh, the one to, I will be using to explain my, my task, my hypotheses are based on Crunch. And this is, it, it talks more about 
neurofunctional um, uh, reorganization in elderly as a result of task demands. So this model says that it doesn't matter if you're young or old, um, whenever you find a task difficult, you will um, try to recruit additional neural resources to help you complete the task. Mm -hmm. And young, women, young people will also do that. So, but it's just that elderly would do it at lower task demands, will um, activate additional regions at lower task demands. Mm -hmm. so, so I will be therefore manipulating one of my variables task demands so as to see how do um, young people and older people react to this. So I have two levels of uh, task demands. Um, I also wanted to say that these, are the these all belong in the compensation models, but there are also some other models which refer to de-differentiation, okay. which, which, which propose that um, it's, it's, it's the loss of distinctiveness, like that, like, that, that the brain loses its specific specificity in recruiting uh, brain regions. It's like as if the neurons fire all over the place without specifically selecting the correct region, the more the most efficient pathway to perform the task. So it's like re reduced distinctiveness of the brain activation, and it's called uh, de-differentiation. Mm -hmm. And would you say that for? So, so for the differentiation aspect mm -hmm. is then when you're older, would that be like less targeted or kind of exactly. more over the place compared to when you're young, you're kind of better, your brain is better too, okay. Exactly, exactly, it's exactly that, it's less targeted, the, the recruitment of neural resources is less targeted and um, there's evidence for both for both uh, compensatory and the differentiation uh, ha taking place, usually the cutoff uh, criteria will be how does, um, how does uh, performance go along with these? Like if, for example, you have increased activation but improved performance or maintained performance, it tends to be interpreted as compensation. Whereas if you have, let's say, increased performance but increase activation but reduce performance it will be interpreted as the differentiation mm -hmm. i also need to mention that sometimes there might be some underactivation in some areas and this is also normal some some um, some areas will activate less in order to allocate these resources to a more task specific um, with, a, with a more task specific objective and when you, um, so can you tell us a bit more about the people that you work with? Because so you already said there would be targets towards young, comparison between young and older people. Mm -hmm. the, can I assume that all these people would, would be healthy people? Or with older, gen, older generation, will you also look into people with declined cognition, but more just on the normal decline? I mean, like begin starting Alzheimer or dementia? Is that also a focus or is it more kind of just seeing or just between the two age groups for now without really looking into different um, differences within the aging uh, population in terms of uh, dementia groups or Alzheimer groups? Uh, so no, I'm studying healthy aging. Yep. So mm -hmm. I will be uh, uh, recruiting my participants uh, 
making sure that there's no history of any mental illness or other accident could affect uh, um, activation. And uh, now we will be screening them for uh, with the MOCA. Uh, it's the Mo- Montreal. Uh, oh, what's the name of it? Uh, it's a cognitive tool. Uh, uh, so they will be. Uh, only healthy participants with no uh, sign of uh, cognitive decline. Okay, okay. It's, um, a, it's a Montreal Cognitive Assessment Test, the MOCA. Okay, and so there you basically will assess, just aside from first you do the tests, or that you know whether they had anything or not, then you have healthy people, and then you look at their cognitive tests already before you then start your own testing? Is that exactly. how we see it? Yeah, okay. Exactly, yeah. Okay. And how long will people stay, like how long will your testing last for? Is it like over a, a short period of time or a longer period of time? Uh, there, there will be two, well, first of all, there will be first a phone screening where we will assess um, various criteria of age, education, languages, uh, like there are specific criteria in, in order to be able to um, make the population, the two populations as uh, more compatible and similar. Uh, and then there will be a first session where they will come to the research center and they will complete the MOCA test and some other tests that we have. Like we will, I will be assessing them for everyday habits, like lecture habits, and to, to try and have an idea of their cognitive reserve. The, what we refer to that is like, uh, apart from education, the formal education, how much um, activity have people maintained throughout their life um, by reading books, by journals, uh, talking, having friends. So it's uh, an everyday uh, habit type of questionnaire. And there will be some other some other tests, the pyramids and palm trees, palm trees test to also as, as an assessment of the cognitive uh, uh, situation. Uh, and these will be during the first session, this will be used in the first session. There will also be a test uh, and um, about uh, fMRI compatibility. So this is very important. There's no point um, bring like th- this will be even assessed from the phone. If someone is not compatible to go into the MRI, um, they will not be recruited. So um, there's the phone, there's the first session, and then there's a third session where they will be performing the, um, the task, the semantic task, in the scanner. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's approximately uh, 45 minutes in the scanner. And um, yeah, they will be performing the task. They're not allowed to move. And uh, yeah. And and in in basically after when you when you've completed the the trials or the the tests with the the it, the I guess the subjects or the people that are taking part in in the trial, um, like what I, I assume that your research is feeding into a larger um, research around aging is is uh, kind of what 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 is your I guess the focus and, and the, the bigger picture goal here in terms of achieving with um, un- understanding this difference in language and, and what could it benefit um, yeah, us? Uh, well, it does, uh, it does fit into the lab uh, of my supervisor, which is, which is uh, yes, about um, uh, 
finding finding common links between aging and language uh, maintenance mm -hmm. and uh, and how can other cognitive declines be viewed given the maintenance of linguistic abilities like all like the idea is that so many uh, fields of uh, cognitive fields get affected in aging, and why is that with language? And what are the what could be what could we learn um, that could be applied, let's say, to other cognitive areas for elderly people? So it falls within the realm of uh, of um, uh, of healthy aging. Mm -hmm. Additionally. Communication and staying active in aging is very important for elderly people. Uh, so, for example, having social connections and communicating is uh, it's very important. So, social activities are very important for healthy aging. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely, and. I mean, have yeah, working myself within within neurological conditions, obviously with people that have cognitive decline themselves, it is uh, uh, and and also aphasia, for example, so speech impairment issues because of a stroke. Um, yes, it is. That's yeah, exactly the language, the link between I guess language and your brain injury and uh, expression. Um, so so yeah, it, it will be very interesting to to see the results as well going forward and, and understanding this more and more into trying, I guess, to help people um, in the future stay more healthy or help people stay more healthy from a, a cognitive perspective. Um, it's a, yeah, and where I, where I work, there's a, there's a lot of other labs working on numerous other issues, uh, including, um, uh, mild cognitive impairment and lesions, uh, how lesions in the brain they might affect uh, communication skills. Uh, so I'm just I was just referring to the lab of my supervisor. And uh, by the way, I haven't yet started the recruitment of my participants mm -hmm. because I need to submit my register reports. And anyway, now with the COVID situation, the the UNF where the MRI machine is based is closed. Mm -hmm. yeah. So for I don't know when, for, for I don't know until when. So anyways, I will not be able to to start the recruitment until it opens. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's very complicated to do yeah, to run trials now, obviously because of the of COVID nineteen, um, and to do recruitment and, and and everything in a safe manner as well. So, um, yeah, but hopefully you can start things up again when 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 things are possible again. It's hard to see to to put dates on it, but um, but uh, yeah, it sounds very interesting. It sounds amazing, uh, though. Um, what you're doing uh, at the lab and also kind of the bigger uh, all the research coming together as you were explaining from uh, the group uh, that you work at to understand uh, cognitive decline further um, mm. and all these links between language and aging um, I want to because obviously this is what you're doing now but in the past you've worked I, I mean I've went through your career and it's it's really impressive to see what you've done in international development as well and the projects you've worked on in that setting in global health as well. And I was wondering whether you could tell us a bit more about those projects and the ones that you were working on 
with, for example, HIV patients and mm. mental health support and education around it um, as well. So, and also how it was to work in those settings as well, because I'm sure that was not always um, as straightforward as it is uh, in, in other settings. Uh, I love my research. Uh, and uh, I love learning all, all these uh, new models and everything. But indeed, where my heart is, is, uh, I would say, more global health and um, uh, working at the community level. I loved it. It was what I used to do um, with NGOs and uh, working with people locally on health issues um, with NSF, for example, or other NGOs. Uh, so yeah, uh, well, um, should I start from many projects? Yeah, you can, yeah, you can just yeah. share yeah, your experiences and, and kind of, yeah, what, also what brought you there, I guess, in the beginning, uh, because you studied psychology, uh, that's how you started out, then you went into gender and international development studies as well, yes. which are, yeah. So, so I'm very interested to learn and how what your journey looked like and and why specifically humanitarian settings and as well linked to global health. So that's um... uh, well, uh, yes, indeed, I studied psychology and uh, in the beginning, I well, to be honest, I, I wanted to go to art school and while I was studying psychology, I was going to the art school as a as a visitor mm -hmm. because my, my parents had not been very supportive of me going to the arts. So anyway, I, had find, I found myself into the School of Psychology, which is excellent. Really, I really recommend these studies to anybody. Uh, it um, creates um, a way of thinking, uh, which I think is unique in trying to uh, see things and human behaviors and emotions from many perspectives. Like I, I never worked as a psychologist, but I, I think I am a psychologist every day. And um, and I see that also with my fellow students. Um, I, anyway, I loved it. I love the studies. Uh, I think we should all be <laughs> getting some courses in our lives because it's it's helpful for everyday issues like man, um, emotional management and crisis management. Like it's, it's it has it has a use. It's useful for every aspect of life. Anyways. And anyway, at the fourth at the fourth year when I was doing my practice in a psychiatric hospital, um, I realized that I didn't want to be a psychologist, a clinical psychologist. And anyways, at the time uh, I was in Greece at the moment, I was feeling that Greece is too small for me, and I wanted to travel and explore and learn new cultures and do something for the world. And I had decided at this time that um, I was not particularly well that I, first of all I didn't want to work in an office in front of the screen uh, definitely not but not even in four walls like I, I said okay I have to find another way I, I, I hated the idea of being confined in one space plus I had I had decided that um, I don't care if ever I'm going to be rich in my life <laughs> I needed to follow my heart let's say so I had, at the time, I had um, applied to MSF in Greece. They used to have um, a cell, MSF Greece, which, that, which then uh, merged with a Spanish one towards MSF Ogba, anyways. And um, at this time, when I applied, I had already started a master's in school psychology in Athens. So 
I, I also had a job and I was in a relationship and like my life was stable and predictable and I know I was kind of feeling um, suffocating and I just by chance I had applied to MSF and there happened to be an opening in Malawi and in the beginning I said no no you know I just started my master's and then you know I have a job now and then two days later, I said, no, no, I have to have this job. I need it. I need it. So I think I was so enthusiastic. I was all over them. There was no way they were not going to give it to me. So there was. It was my, it was my first uh, mission with MSF in Malawi. The first mission was definitely a huge eye-opener. I had, I had never been to Africa before. I didn't really have an, an image of what it would look like, what people are like. You have to reprogram yourself uh, to understand the culture, to be open to understand your culture, not with the lenses you have been wearing until then throughout all your life, but forget the lenses, just be there and open up your eyes, your ears, your heart, and you know, just take in as much as you can. It's a very diff different cultural context than the Western one. And um, different values, very beautiful. Um, really, I mean, I don't know, I don't know what sometimes the stereotype of people is, the image that they might have about Africa. Um, but for, for me, I completely revised uh, a lot of ideas, pre-defined pre ideas that maybe I have had. Yeah. So my project was uh, working on um, setting up VCT. VCT was then called the Voluntary Counseling and Testing Services. So it was mainly about it, it, mainly, mainly hospital based um, uh, services, VCT services. So the idea, is, the idea was to have as many people tested as possible. There was um, a rapid testing, which was you just needed a prick on your finger. And not even medical staff had to do that. So the government, together with NGOs, we were training uh, local people with some sort of education to perform counseling which was uh, doing a pre-test counseling, um, evaluating risky behaviors with people, conducting a test, so, uh, so letting them know of their seropositive data, so the results would be, out, would be out in 10 minutes, and then doing a post-test counseling. So regardless of the outcome of the test, practicing safe sex, practicing uh, yeah, safe, safe sexual behavior, and eventually if it was a woman, talking to her about uh, prevention of mother-to-child transmission when she was going to be pregnant and um, all sorts of, uh, you know, outcomes plus referrals because NSF Malawi, together with Cambodia, was one of the project, the pilot project of MSF about ART treatment. MSF had been very, very active into um, promoting the... Um, what's it called? Uh, well, they've, they've been campaigning for drugs, for because drugs, they have this um, patent, the right to the patent, so they've been campaigning a lot. Oh, that, yeah, freedom uh, to operate uh, from, yeah. Exactly, yeah. so that uh, other countries like India can uh, produce these drugs at a much lower cost, and they've been distributing them, and be, they've been running ART programs in very poor settings, including Malawi, uh, low resource set, settings uh, where people because for ART treatment uh, it's very it's very important to have to adhere to the treatment 
uh, because first you will have like the first line treatment, and then once there is um, uh, resistance to this type of drugs, you will move on to second line and third line. At the time I was there, I think there were two lines of RT treatment. I think now there, there's much more, and definitely. Definitely the whole medical field has uh, switched. But except for the pioneers in proving that um, ART treatment is possible in low-resource settings. Um, so, voilà. so the people who were HIV positive, they would then be referred to the ART department in the hospital. Uh, so these were the VCT services in in the hospital hospital base that we also had mobile VCT clinic uh, running throughout villages. We would be doing information education communication activities at the community level, um, working with local NGOs, working working with local leaders, religious leaders. So it was very interesting, very exciting, and um, yeah, I was feeling very alive. <laughs> yeah, no, you can hear it when you talk about it as well. It's very. It's very fascinating. I, I always go to the MSF Innovation Days here in London. Now it was virtual. It's always in May, April, end of April, May. Um, and one day is about the research that MSF does. Um, mm -hmm. And then the second day is around innovation. And when when it was said in person, it was in, yeah just incredible to hear and to meet the people as well that work on site and hear their stories as well and the sharing especially the sharing that they were doing I was yes. so the first day this was last year the first day last year on the research part there was a woman a doctor talking about um, drug trials that they were doing for HIV as well in in, in regions I forgot now where it was but uh, essentially the the trial that they were doing for that specific group it basically did not work in the mm -hmm. way that they, I guess, had anticipated it. And they were just sharing all the results. And I, I guess coming back to what we started with in the conversation, right? Publishing freely what basically how they approached it, where it failed, why it failed. Um, and I thought, yeah, that was, was really incredible to hear, especially in, the, in those circumstances as well, if you don't have computers like here or um, or the same equipment, I guess, or, or the same... Um, yeah. Yeah, so, so that was very, yeah. Yeah, I'm, uh, I hope to work with them uh, at some point again. Uh, uh, they, yeah, I really, um, I really respect this organization. I've worked with many, I've, I've seen many, I've collaborated with many, but MSF, uh, yeah, they're very respectable. Mm -hmm. By the way, they, uh, it's called the Access Campaign. Okay. Uh, this uh, campaign that they do uh, to uh, to promote research, first of all, for forgotten diseases, including tuberculosis, mm -hmm. but also promoting the production of drugs at a lower cost and regardless of the of the um, uh, um, this patent right of patent. Mm -hmm. That's called Atis campaign. Yeah, yeah, which is great. So Atis campaign, you said. Yeah. Yeah, Atis campaign. All right, I'll add the link for people who are interested to learn more about it. I mean, for like anyone that that might be thinking of going into working for uh, an NGO in in humanitarian settings or other organizations or set up something themselves within this field, what what, what advice would you give to them or what kind of tips would you give to them? Uh, uh, well, I would. Well, uh, 
It could be it could be around things definitely not to do, for example, or you already said in the beginning, you have to open yourself, you have to open your mind, your heart, everything. But I guess maybe on a practical level, is there something that yeah, people could do or look into or um, well, I, I, I guess uh, having um, uh, an education, because I, I see now, I haven't worked on the field for a long time, and I see now, like, I, I, I recently logged in, and I saw that more and more there's a tendency to focus on uh, business development, like to promote international development through the, uh, the support of local part of, uh, business um, initiatives and small enterprises. And there is more and more a tendency. This is general, I guess, to 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 have IT like the uh, to have to be to be able to manage data, to be able to to be a good IT specialist. Um, so overall, yeah, I would say yes. Of course, uh, relevant education is important. I would recommend um, a, such a lifestyle. Uh, without any uh, hesitation, uh, I thought I think it's a it's a, an eye opener uh, and useful for everybody because I think it also makes us realize and see uh, with a critical eye what are the lifestyles that we live in the Western world and are we sure it's the correct lifestyle? Are we sure it makes us happy? I mean, all this consumerism and all, all this like you know you you kind of reevaluate a bit who you are, what you need in life, uh, depending on, you know, what has been, um, what are the stereotypes of, I don't know, a successful person. And it's especially, I, I think it's, it's more intense here in North America than, than uh, in Europe, by the way. So, yeah, I would say it's a great life and it's a great lifestyle, mm. but it comes with cost. It comes with high cost. Uh, I would say one of the biggest costs that it comes with is that you end up being unstable. Like, your life is unstable. Your relations become unstable. Um, and there is a cost to it. Like, you don't get it in the beginning. To me, it grew into into me because after 10 years of um, being all over the place with the luggage, and I, I, because then it becomes a pain to meet with people, get attached to them, uh, get attached to projects, and then you leave again. And it's a de defense mechanism at some point that uh, to protect yourself, well, you don't get attached anymore. You know, you, you learn how to protect your feelings, your, uh, your well-being. So I think this is when I thought that I had lost a bit my initial, um, you know, going with the hard thing. Because I would go to a new project and I would say, okay, um, you know, I don't want to invest 1,000%. And that's when I said, okay, it's time for me to go. Mm -hmm. And, and uh, this is this was my, after my last um, project in Bangladesh. I think I was already burned out, but because it happens, it can happen. Yeah, Some absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And you know you're not you're not prepared for it, and you're you don't know necessarily how to recognize it. And then especially after Bangladesh, I was completely burned out, and I said, okay, I don't want this lifestyle anymore. And I decide, and this is why I decided to switch it, take another path. And this is where the PhD fits in because it's my PhD is different from what my uh, professional activity was like. Mm -hmm. 
Uh, but now I miss going back to the field. <laughs> so, yeah, I, I think I should have been more careful to take regular breaks to maintain a relationship because, you know, I had a boyfriend at the time, but we never ended up in the same country and in the same place. So we were always in a distance. That's a very typical expatriate problem because both would work usually um, as an expatriate, but then, you know, you have, oh, you have this super exciting opportunity in this country, this super exciting pro project, and you always promise to each other, last time, last time, we say goodbye, last time, after that, we will live together, but it never happens. It's yeah. very difficult. It takes a lot of um, self-regulation to, you know, you say no to this exciting opportunity and you stick to each other and you build on the long term uh, so yeah I mean it's difficult to be to not have friends or like to be in a couple life for not to be in a couple life forever mm. so there are there are challenges there they're manageable you have to just a bit decide about them and act upon them yeah, no, absolutely. I, I completely uh, understand. And, and uh, having <laughs> lived in many other countries as well, um, um, outside of my home, my home country. So it is, it is exactly what you said. It's, it's kind of a life choice in the beginning. But it is it definitely comes with with uh, some costs to it, right, especially to relationships. Um, yeah. So, so um but yeah, it's it's very fascinating to hear about your journey and so on. In in I guess going to because you said from the beginning, okay, you studied psychology because your parents didn't support you going into art school. But I guess mm -hmm. were you always a very creative and and I guess um, person from when you were growing up as well, in terms of trying different projects and 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 really. I guess putting your heart in things, which art usually is as well. Um, so, um, I think I was creative in my mind, like having a lot of imagination, like liking to play a lot, freely play. I, I have a memory that I was finding school difficult. I was a good student, a very good in fact, but I I was always feeling confined, and I wanted to to have a to live a life which would allow me to be who I am without restrictions and do what I want and follow my heart. And I think sometimes this is difficult in a more, um, I don't know, in a specific professional setting or university setting. So, like, you have to follow some rules. And in fact, it's everywhere like that. You have to comply with some requirements. And uh, sometimes I'm jealous of artists because... They don't necessarily have to comply with such requirements. They can go out and just express who they are, what they want, how they see the world, and uh, without any uh, censorship on themselves, which is not what happens if you're a psychologist or if you work in a humanitarian setting, if you want to pursue a career in, uh, I don't know, um, research or you yeah it's much more you have to be much more uh, in alliance with uh with a yeah, group with beliefs yeah and, and yeah absolutely rules as well that's definitely true yeah i guess that's um 
it's a choice I guess that, that you have to make but also I guess what a choice is not always a, there's not always a choice to make I guess it's kind of um, if you can make the choice to live this life that's absolutely amazing but it's not always just as easy as just going for it I guess but um, but hopefully you can at least go some way to being that person that you've always wanted to be anyways yeah. in, in what, what you pursue so um, uh, a last topic I wanted to address is is um, about the role of women in global health because mm -hmm. you've worked within within especially for, for 10 years within humanitarian settings and then uh, within within global health I was wondering whether you could shed some light on on women working behind the scenes as well on on side but also how we can improve because women working within these settings because obviously if if not if it's not a diverse group of people working both locally and I guess globally on these issues it's very hard to solve gender-based issues sexual violence issues etc so uh, yeah I was wondering whether you could shed some light and maybe yeah give us some insight on how you think we could improve things going forward as well right so you mean mainly from uh, the point of view of uh, women uh, in low resource settings or women who work uh, in humanitarian organizations both actually both. so definitely yeah. yeah definitely obviously there is the the aspect of the women in low resource settings, but also the women that can help those women in low resource setting. Um, yeah, so, so I guess both. Uh, well, it's... Uh, the difficult part is that it requires a change in mindset in men and in women and the whole population to revisit stereotypes, to revisit gender roles, uh, to recreate a society where uh, women are not portrayed as um, uh, less competent. Uh, I, I mean, I, I live in a Western society and sometimes I go to the library and we pick kids' books and sometimes I'm shocked how does the library allow such a book to circulate. It's so obvious that the, that the girl is always second to what the boy says. Like there's a story with two uh, siblings, a boy and a girl. And the boy will always say, let's do this. And the girl will respond, oh, yes, good idea. And portraying all these gender stereotypes where the girls will prepare the meals, whereas the boy will construct towers and, and cars so it's it's uh, it gets you uh, it's very it's very cunning how the stereotypes might get to someone and to grow up with this I think there's a lot of work to do there stereotypes but of course there's a lot of work to do with uh, well ensuring that women participate uh, in the in the life of uh, the economic life of a country, especially if it's a low resource setting, um, a lot of countries they won't send the girls to school, uh, and a lot of countries girls will get pregnant uh, and they won't go to school. In a lot of countries, girls they won't go to school because uh, they have their period, and they're not equipped for it. Uh, a lot of a lot of countries, girls will be raped on. On the, on the way to school, so the parents will not send them there. Um, so there's a lot 
about that, access to school and sending girls to school and ensuring some equal education. But then, of course, after the even after school, what what happens? I think I think there should be much more um, like supporting women's initiative and in setting up <coughs> setting up small businesses and ensuring in in any ways. Uh, there are a lot of examples where women's uh, businesses have been very successful. And um, sometimes, I mean, most of the times, they're the ones <coughs> who will ensure the well-being of their family. They, <coughs> they will not only earn the money, but they will spend it correctly. Whereas in many settings, well, it's been seen that men might uh, spend all the money in drinking or other activities which are not for the well-being. So there is an, an added value to help women uh, take a leading role for families, for themselves and for families, which is about, uh, um, yeah, I mean, taking taking care of, of themselves and their kids and the future generations, therefore, by ensuring that they can have, let's say, loans, starting small businesses, though in the gender literature, Women should not be viewed as the means to improve societies and the families. They should be seen as a goal in themselves. So I think both are important, seeing women uh, as an agency by themselves. So women have a right to education, have a right to work, have a right to control, have a control over their lives. Um, on their own, regardless if they are being used to improve societies in many places. Uh, so it, I would say, depending on women, on girls' role and women's role in low-resource settings, it, it depends a lot on the cultural setting. Bangladesh is very different than, let's say, Cambodia. Um, yes, there, there are uh, masculinity stereotypes all over, but um, the situation for, girl, for girls in Bangladesh was much more difficult. Whereas, for example, in Cambodia, women do have um, much more agency and decision-making power. And it's more, I wouldn't say matriarchal society, but uh, in many aspects, they were the ones leading uh, families. Um, so as for women working in the humanitarian setting, um, well, first of all, I met very powerful and very successful women. One of them was um, Marit Hirvonen. She was the country director of uh, WFP in Rwanda. Okay. She was very outspoken. She was from Finland, if I remember well. Uh, she was uh, very outspoken, very, very strong and powerful uh, doing, doing this job of a leader in the country, in, a, in national pro programs. So WFP is a World Food Program, right? Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, and then, um, I mean, there are, every organization has policies to institutionalize women's engagement and participation. There are policies to do gender mainstreaming. Uh, so, for example, every organization, at least in the UN at the time, had to make sure that every policy was being mainstream, gender mainstream. Um, I, I, I don't know. I think uh, there's still a lot to be done with, uh, in many aspects, first of all, uh, making women uh, 
want to go into a leadership leadership position because many many often I mean I have the image that girls women they say they don't want to so why they don't want to and what what are the reasons the underlying reasons and what are the stereotypes that even the stereotypes that women have about themselves or other people expect of women but what is the stereotype of a women leader hmm. Like, do we expect a woman leader to act as a man leader? Is this what we want? I don't think no. that's what we want. No. <laughs> um, and, um, yeah, I think positive uh, women's roles are necessary. Like, we need more positive women. Where a woman can be a woman, and also a mother. I think motherhood, that's another big uh, uh, bottleneck over there. Because I, I consider myself... Um, wanting to have a career however I chose to stay with my kids and raise them and I find I thought this is very feminist it's a choice and it's not because I want to adhere to the uh, traditional woman's role taking care of kids but it was a choice I just think I should have been paid for it and I should have been having social security because it's a job that I'm doing and that's where it comes that's where women's problem lies they take take care of a lot of issues whether they are in a a Western society or an African society, and it's not being recognized. All this time and energy that we put, it's not being recognized. It's not being paid for. It's not being acknowledged as important. And um, yeah, it's. I, I think that um, capitalist societies and feminism. I think they need to redefine a bit, like what is um, what is a productive. Uh, who is productive? What is pro- how is productivity defined? Yeah, yeah. No, absolutely. I think you're very, very right that uh, women are often punished for making certain choices um, from a from a career and life perspective um, compared to to other other groups of society. So, so I think that's very, very true. They, all our leaders can't all be Jacinda <laughs> from New Zealand, um, but um, but no, it, it, I think I think from a yeah policy perspective, I think also we can do a, still a lot better uh, I'm, in terms of the gender balance between the people that are actually making the decisions and pushing certain agendas forward mm-hmm. to then make a difference on a global level. Um, I think that would be that would be great going forward, but um, one step at a time, right? Oh, <laughs> In terms of trying to push things and change things forward, short, uh, surely, but um, but it will take some time uh, still, unfortunately. Um, right, but this was absolutely amazing. Uh, thank you so much for sharing all this. I um, I just before we we basically end our conversation, I usually do a quick fire quiz. Mm-hmm. Where um, I ask you uh, some questions, and you basically just um, just either think about the first thing you uh, respond, the first thing you think about, or kind of what you're currently doing. Uh, so, um, so my first question would be, what are you currently reading, um, and and yeah, why 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 are you reading it basically? Uh, so I'm reading now a book by Mark Mazower, he's a historian, and uh, I'm reading his book uh, Salonika, City of Ghosts, it's a, it's a historical book about the city of Thessaloniki on the north of Greece, 
which has been uh, from like after the fall of the Byzantium. Uh, in 1100, the 1100, up to uh, the Second World War. So how Thessaloniki, Salonika has been um, occupied, changed, inhabited by different populations, uh, multicultural, and definitely a lot of Jews as well, because there were a lot of Christians, Muslims, and Jews, and a lot of nationalities or different language speakers. There were not always nations like Bulgarians, Serbians, Russians. So it's about a history of the Saloniki city. Okay, uh, where are you from in Greece? Where were you born in Greece exactly? Oh, yeah. Well, I was born in Montreal. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, And my family lived here for a long time, but then decided to go back to Greece. Uh, My father was homesick. My origins are from what we call Asia Minor, which is um, part of contemporary Turkey, uh, Cappadocia. Have you heard of it? No, no. Yeah. Uh, so it belongs to Turkey today, but it used to be Greek uh, because uh, Greek populations were very scattered in Asia Minor. since ancient times or colonies, and uh, so, but in um, 1922 there was, uh, well, uh, there was um, the, the catastrophe of Smyrna, of this Smyrna, and uh, populations were changed. So in fact, my uh, great-grandparents, they were refugees to Greece, they were Greeks, but they were refugees to Greece. There was an exchange, a forced exchange of population between Greece and Turkey. Okay, okay. That's so, yeah. And so now, basically, I mean, obviously, there there is still some part of a Greek population in Turkey, I, I assume, as well. So kind of remain. Uh, I think very, very little. Oh, yeah. Very, very little. Yeah. Okay. Okay, very good. Um, next question. Um, your favorite scientific or tech innovation and why? Uh, or favorite invention. <laughs> in, yeah. Right. Uh, I say I love cinema. <laughs> what did you say? I love cinema. I love cinema, yeah. Okay, yeah. very good. Is there a specific reason why you love cinema? or Because it combines all other forms of arts. You can have theater together with music, together with uh, mm-hmm. painting, let's say, or the visual. Uh, it has a lot of... It, co- it combines everything. It's very... You get emerged like um, a... Yeah, I think it's an experience where you are you can be absorbed mm-hmm. with all with all your senses. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, great. Um, next question: uh, Is there an album or a song that has impacted you in some way, and how did it impact you? Right, uh, a lot of them. Yeah. I love uh, a French song. I love it very much. It's it's called "Cantonat que l'amour" okay. of Jacques Brel. Yeah, okay. and it says, I know you know it. Uh, for me, it's like um, it's an overall hymn, hymn towards humanity, um, and uh, I love Pink Floyd. Uh, all all of it. Um, uh, they've been guiding me as a teenager, and because it's about women, I will say I also love Patti Smith. Oh yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> And uh, when she was young, and even now today, I, I, I've seen her in some concerts, and I think she's just, she, she's a, a person who inspires, she's an inspirer. Mm-hmm. Yeah, she's great. Uh, she's, I mean, she's such a legend in a way, in terms of her yeah. entire career and her music and her books, her writing as well. 
Oh, I haven't, haven't read her yet. yet. You're giving me a good tip now. Yeah, yeah, definitely read, read uh, some of her books. She just published, I think, one last year again. I forgot the name now, the last one. Yeah. But, um, but yeah, yeah, she's also an incredible writer. So, um, all right. A recommendation of work by a female scientist and why her? Um, well, a scientist, I would say Marie Curie. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, because first of all, she's a woman, and then because she uh, she has changed uh, the course of history uh, with her uh, inventions. Um, she was uh, yeah in physics and chemistry. Um, I was also expecting the the, the question about uh, cinematographer. Yeah, and I had uh, in my mind uh, Lena Wertmiller. I had to, I had to say it. Yeah, 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 totally. Uh, so yeah. Why? Yeah. Why her? Uh, first of all, because she's a woman, mm-hmm. and then because she has uh, she's Italian and she has this uh, kind of um, uh, surrealistic and very colorful and very expressive films i don't know if you've seen her films and there's this and it's like with always like the political view yeah, yeah. um like she has a history of amore historia di amore di anarchia like a history of love and anarchy and um there's a guy who wants to uh um, kill the dictator okay. so he travels from from the village and to rome and then he's being hosted in a brothel um, and then there's all this story with so many women around him uh, and he wants to kill the dictator and anyway there's a story about it and she has done a lot of films which are all great but this one I think is particularly nice because at the same time it's very humorous yeah, yeah. okay that's great I don't think I've seen a movie by her I, I need to look uh, look into her film- filmography maybe I have but at least I'm not aware uh, of any that I think of. So. There's also another one which I really like, the, the, the Lady and the Sailor. I don't know if it's translated like this. It's very political yeah, about a couple, the rich lady who gets stranded on a line with a poor sailor. Okay. And, and, the, and this also includes a lot of gender stereotypes. Mm-hmm. She's, uh, she, she's very provocative. Okay, and, and that's a movie by her as well? Sorry? Is that a movie by her as well? Yeah, yeah, oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay, okay. The okay. Lady and the Sailor. Okay, very good. All right, some things to look into <laughs> now. Um, but, but yeah, when you mentioned Jacques Brel as well, his song, it, it really is very much like a homage to humani- humanity, I guess, or what's um, especially very, uh, in today's times, it's a very relevant song. So, yeah. um, But thank you so much for the chats. It was amazing. Uh, is there, if, if anybody would want to learn more about your work, what would be the best way to to go and look at? Is would that be your university page or? or I, I haven't I haven't put a lot up on uh, my university page because I haven't completed. Uh, I haven't done. I haven't collected my data and I oh, haven't. Sure. I don't have any results yet. Uh, but eventually, someone can drop me an email. Okay, sure. Okay, very good. Uh, I'll the add way, the link uh, to the um, to the show notes so people can find find the link to um, to to your webpage, for example, to get in right. touch. Right. Uh, 
Okay. Yeah, I guess social media, Twitter. I don't know if you. Um, no. Yeah. <laughs> no, I don't have any. No, but that's, that's fine. <laughs> uh, I'll make sure to add your, your webpage, and then people can okay. can get in touch if they want to learn more or even, um, yeah, collaborate or whatever. Um, so thank you so much, and and yeah, I hope everything will will yeah go well for you in the future hope the lockdown there will gradually reduce as well so um and, and we all stay healthy which is the main thing you all stay healthy as well over there so um but yeah i'll uh, i look forward to chatting anyways in the near future and thanks again for doing this um thank you everyone for listening bye uh Thank you very much, uh, Isabel. Uh, it was my pleasure to chat with you. Uh, and I'm looking forward to a chat where you will be answering all these. Oh, <laughs> uh, yeah. <laughs> no, that's absolutely it. Yeah, I'll definitely... Uh, I'm definitely open to do that as well. I, uh, it's a great, great thing to do. And, and it's great to kind of share. Uh, and hear all the sharings of stories by everyone. Uh, 